0: Hello everyone, this is Dr. Dan Guerra. come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the inland Pacific Northwest of the United States. Today is the 4th of August, 2020, and I'm doing this podcast because I have nothing better to do. So let's get started with doing just that. And recall that we are in a general discussion of aging. So I've done several uh, audio podcasts, I think I'm up to number eight on that series, and I've done just one total video, and that was in the other lineage of lectures designed to talk more about the biochemistry of oncogenesis, particularly covalent modification of proteins that travel along an axis of lipogenesis. And so we talked about prenylation particularly phosphorylation and geronogenylation of proteins that are linked to the uh, progression of tumor genesis, as well as when they are mutated, the prolongation of cell replication capacity. And that can lead, then trigger an oncogenic event or If it's put into a phosphorylated state, some of these proteins, after they have been modified by uh, components of the mevalonic acid pathway, that is, and therefore linked to an alteration of biofuel utilization using glucose just to make lactic acid and NADPH and ribose-5-phosphate. So that would include the pathways of glycolysis and acid phosphate shunt. And then the utilization of amino acids, particularly glutamine, to cytosolically generate citrate and that citrate synthesis can then lead directly to the production of uh, uh, oxalacetic acid and acetyl-CoA in the cytoplasm and that OAA will just be involved in the movement of malate back into the mitochondria and the citrate leaves. So that tricarboxylic acid transporter then will facilitate some citrate, leaving the mitochondria, but another increase in its concentration because of glutaminolysis associated with alpha-KG production to acetyl-CoA. And then that acetyl-CoA, some of it will be used for de novo acyl lipid synthesis. Those are fatty acids to make phosphoglycerol lipids and sphingolipids, membrane lipids. Uh, and also, it, depending on the cell type, triacylglycerol. But also, more importantly, in certain cell lineages, a production of MVA pathway intermediates, MVA is mevalonic acid, remember, and that's on the road to ultimately cholesterologenesis. So you understand that that acetyl-CoA can be used either for fatty acid synthesis, which are called acyl lipids, or for the production of MVA products, such as the isopentenyl pyrophosphate pathway, um, subsequent uh, members, like pharnasil and pyrophosphate. and then that's going to go through that pathway, which will be distinct. And glutamine can serve that function. So we talked about that, and now I want to get more into um, some of the pathophysiological aspects of aging. But of course, because we're biochemistry, we're going to be doing it from the biochemical um, viewpoint and axis. So again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, this is an aging series, Authentic Biochemistry, 04, August, 2020. Now a paper published in Molecular Medicine Reports in March, about five years ago, 2015, tells us the following. It tells us that cellular senescence is the mechanism of aging, and that the senescent cells themselves, that are contributing to the overall senescence of an organism, accumulate with chronological age. So you get more senescent cells uh, being generated as the organism ages. Um, and that happens directly in vivo in mammals. These senescent cells, characterized by various changes, one is uh, there's a big change in phenotype, they typically exhibit large, kind of flat, vacuolated, granular morphology. And they tend to accumulate lipid droplets in the form of triacylglycerol. There are visible stress fibers in these cells and together with an increased lysosomal content gives you sort of a general description of what a senescent cell looks like uh, under microscopy. Now a proliferative arrest accompanies senescence and that's shown by a down regulation of certain genes. So there's one that comes up very often. It's a proliferative marker gene called MKI67. Uh, You also get increased expression of mediators of senescence, such as the cyclin kinase inhibitors. I can tell you a couple of names of those genes. There's 16-Ink4A and there's 21-CDKN1. So back to this KA67, I'm gonna talk a little bit about it, so just hold on. The KA67 protein has a very short half-life, only about 90 minutes, between 60 and 90 minutes. It is present during all active phases of the cell cycle, but it's absent in the resting phase, the G0. In later phases of mitosis, for example, during anaphase and telophase, there's a sharp decrease in Ki67 proteins, uh, protein concentration. So, the expression of the KI67 protein is associated with a proliferative activity of intrinsic cell populations. And you see this in malignant tumors. It allows it to be used as a marker for tumor aggressiveness and as a potential as a reliable marker in cancers of the breast, soft tissue, lung, prostate, cervix, and CNS. So it's obviously an important protein that can be used for cancer grading and for prognostic uh, evaluation at the clinic. So the gene encoding ki 67 is a continuous sequence of about 29,965 base pairs located on chromosome 10q25. And it is comprised of 15 exons with sizes ranging from 67 all the way up to about 6,900 nucleotides. And there are 14 introns, of course, (laughs) with sizes ranging from as small as 87 all the way up to about 3,569. Exon-13 contains 16 homologous segments, which are known as Ki-67 repeats, and it's located at the center of the gene genes. Compri- the reason I'm telling you all this detail, we're going to tell you a little bit about mutations in this gene, which will be kind of interesting and curious. Uh, it's comprised of 74 base pair 5 prime region and a 264 base pair 3 prime region in that protein. Now, the quantity as I said of Ki67 present at any time during the cell cycle is highly regulated. In fact, it's regulated by a precise balance between uh, translation and degradation, and that's indicated again by its very short half-life. It undergoes phosphorylation, dephosphorylation during mitosis in vivo, and that renders it, when that, when that cycle goes through, that renders it susceptible to proteolytic degradation. So the gene encodes a nuclear protein found in the nucleus associated with, that is Cas67. It's necessary for cellular proliferation. If you knock it out, you get no cell proliferation. It's all gotten alternatively spliced transcript variants. And these have been pretty well described in the literature since about 2009. There is a related pseudogene on the X chromosome, interestingly. Uh, what else can I tell you? This, this is coming from gene cards. So, um, uh, K167, or marker of proliferation, KI67, is a protein coding gene. Diseases associated with it include cervical intraepithelial neoplasia and Bowen's disease. Among its related pathways are neuroscience and primary focal segmental glomerulosclerosis gene ontology. So it's the FSGS gene. Now that's actually come up a couple of times in my uh, analysis of autism associated genes. So there are several uh, gene annotations there and it's related to a gene called protein C terminus binding protein. It's important paralog of of this gene as is CDCA2. Now, back to the K167, it's required to maintain individual mitotic chromosomes dispersed in the cytoplasm following the nuclear envelope disassembly. It associates with the the surface of the mitotic chromosome and the parachromosomal layer it covers a substantial fraction of the chromosomal surface. And it prevents these chromosomes from collapsing into single chromatin mass by forming a steric and electrostatic charge barrier. The protein has a high net electrical charge, like any, any protein that works in the acids, acids are highly charged. So it acts basically as an aqueous surfactant, it disperses chromosomes because it's surfactant, and it enables independent chromosome motility. It binds DNA with a preference for supercoiled DNA, so packed chromatin, and this is at AT-rich regions. It is not contrary to the internal structure of the metallic chromosomal spindle, uh, but it may play a role in chromatin organization, uh, although we don't have any details on that yet. It is unclear whether it plays a, for example, it's not clear if it plays a direct role in chromatin organization, or whether it's sort of an indirect consequence of the function in maintaining mitotic chromosomes in their dispersed state. So it is a protein involved in chromatin. KI67, uh, there are at least 15 different uh, places where it affects transcription. It's involved in about 55 molecular events in chromatin. Uh, there are at least 20 different splice variants of Ki67. There are at least 23 different biological activities in translation of ribosome biogenesis for this protein. And there's about 50 areas where Ki67 seems to be important for the transcription of ribosomal RNA genes. Ki-67 is one of those proteins that will convert heterochromatin, which is closed chromatin, where there's a repression of gene expression, and it has essentially a deacetylated epigenome, where the histones are deacetylated, highly methylated cytosine residues in CPG islands. When Ki-67 is expressed, you go from the heterochromatin state of repression of gene expression to an acetylated histone tail, to a removal of some of those methyl groups because of demethylase uh, induction, and then the opening of that chromatin to, call, uh, to form the U-chromatin, uh, which is active for transcription. So KI-67 is really important in making chromatin ready for transcription. So it turns heterochromatin, condensed chromatin, into open or U-chromatin and therefore ready for global transcription. A couple other genes we may look at here, just real briefly, a deletion of the P21 gene can prolong lifespan in telomerase null mice and the clearance of P16 gene expressing senescent cells has been shown to rejuvenate aged mice. Now, if I didn't say it back at the KI67, Ki67 is associated with cancer. Um, however, it is also indirectly associated with aging. Okay. So same thing with P21 and P16. Now, these are all proteins that are found in the nucleus. Now, telomerase reactivation suppresses premature aging phenotypes in a telomerase knockout mice. That's from last episode. Taken together, all these findings support the argument that senescent cells are detrimental in older animals. Okay. So developing strategies to delay the onset of senescence or remove senescent cells could provide a route to preventing age-related disease. That's one of the things, reasons we're talking about this. Now, targeting senescence as a mean to combat aging is, as I said many times before, problematic. Any treatment that needs to limit, for example, the deleterious impacts of senescent cells without also impacting a potent barrier against tumorigenesis is going to be one huge problem, right? It's going to be a headache and a nightmare for someone that's trying to develop a pharmaceutical that's going to limit senescence at the same time, not remove the suppression of tumorigenesis. Caloric restriction is reported to extend health span. and We talked about that in various animal models, including in non-human primates. The most promising candidate for a longevity therapeutic in mammals, as I also mentioned to you, is rapamycin. Rapamycin is otherwise just a basic macrolide antibiotic. It's actually produced by streptomyces As was discovered, actually first discovered. This is gonna be kind of exciting in the soil of Easter Island off the West Coast of South America. Yeah. Now, rapamycin is clinically licensed for immunosuppression in kidney transplant patients and for renal cell carcinoma treatment due to a broad inhibitory effect on cell growth proliferation. So some diabetics who have uh, late stage renal cell carcinoma are put on rapamycin. Rapamycin is mechanistically acting by binding the protein PKBP twelve, and that produces a complex which can then bind and inhibit the mTOR, of course, because that's the target of rapamycin. So, and you remember that mTOR is a conserved eukaryotic serine three kinase, right? So, mTOR actually constitutes a point at which diverse environmental signals are coordinated into the overall cellular response. Remember, there are eight hundred different proteins that can be phosphorylated by mTOR. So it's no small change in the category of anabolism. So it regulates pathways that include things like that include to support cell growth, cell proliferation, cell survival, cell motility, and just an overall global enhancement of protein synthesis, right? mTOR is present in two complexes. We talked about this mTOR 1 and 2. They have different components and different functions. We talked about those. Rapamycin basically just inhibits mTORC1, but a chronic use of rapamycin will also take out TORC2. Rapamycin does not inhibit the phosphorylation of all the TORC substrates. So even though it works at the mTORC level through that other protein, right? Remember that that's how it's functioning. Um, Interestingly, even though it can um, target uh, mTOR and inhibit its kinase activity, the modulation of that kinase activity is what we're really talking about, not just complete shutdown of inhibition and inhibition. So for example, mTORC does not, I mean, rapamycin does not completely inhibit the phosphorylation of S6K1. Now remember that was really important for the ribosomal biogenesis, right? For global transcription, right? And it only partially blocks the phosphor, uh, of translation. It only partially blocks the phosphorylation of that inhibitor of translation, which is the e, uh, eukaryotic uh, BP1 protein or EBP1. Remember that. That was the whole story about translation. In fact, the crystal structure of mTOR itself with rapamycin and a protein called FKBP12 suggests that maybe due to differential substrate access to the kinase site. When rapamycin binds, and that makes sense because it sounds like a modulatory role. So we have some crystallographic data that shows that. So anyways, rapamycin seems to extend lifespan somewhat in mice when administered at middle age, but it has significant side effects once you start adding rapamycin within middle age of the murine model. So Aging, remember, leads to a progressive impairment of homeostasis. This is a really important feature that I need to emphasize. Homeostasis at the genomic and cellular and even at the tissue and whole organismal level. In fact, aging will reduce survival and of course it's linked to a reduction in reproductive capacity and fertility. It also increases, aging seems to increase or at least be associated with, not necessarily determinant of, the risk for disease, that is morbidity, and of course mortality. At the um, cellular level, aging of course is kind of secondary to a lot of other processes. And what are these processes? They're all gonna be biochemical. So you have Major factor in aging within cells that are going through senescence is genomic instability. That means that you get more of a corruption in DNA, structural associations with its proteins in the nucleus. So there's an instability of DNA, and instability of chromatin, and that then reflects in genomic instability. We've already talked about telomere attrition, there are a host of epigenetic alterations as you age, which you might consider as pretty uh, obvious. Um, there comes a dysregulation for the cell's ability to sense glucose and fatty acid uptake, so nutrient sensing and accumulation is diminished in senescent cells. And then associated with that is a, basically a tuning down of the specificity. And the quality of intracellular communication. We talked about mitochondrial dysfunction that could lead to, for example, autophagy or apoptosis. You get an inability to promote stem cells, and you get basically then inflammatory responses. And that means it can be an association with an impaired adaptation to overall stress. A couple of other things that happens here, again, you get epigenetic alterations, genomic instability, loss of proteostasis. Um, We get mitochondrial impairment. You get um, a dysfunctional nutrient signaling through the various proteins we've spent some time on, mTOR, AMPK, sirtuins. Um, You get that cellular senescence, and because of that, that feeds into low grade inflammation because the cell is no longer functioning correctly. So it's MHC1 is gonna start presenting antigen on its surface. That's going to trigger the innate immune response and start accumulating evidence to the networked homeostatic immune system that there's something wrong with the cell that it's senescing. Now senescing cells do not signal like an infected cell. Infected cell is gonna be kind of a really huge red flag telling the immune system, there's something invading the cell, come and check it out. If it looks wrong, kill it, like with natural killer cells, or just deal with it with the innate immune response and phagocytosis, for example, using macrophages after uh, neutrophil mediated induction of the communication system with the rest of the immune system. So I think you get the whole idea here. So. Aging is more influential than any other risk factor for the development of all the chronic diseases that take people down. Cardiovascular disease, um, cancer, type two diabetes, osteoporosis, um, and of course, neurodegeneration as in Alzheimer's Parkinson's disease. So aging seems to be linked to pathogenic mechanisms in those diseases. So you can look at it, you can look at aging as in, in multiple organs as well. So in the liver, for example, which ages along with the rest of the cells in the body, you start to get um, a promotion or initiation of aging in the liver, it takes on a lot of damage because of all the oxidative metabolism. You start to get cellular dysfunction in the liver. And then as, you, as the liver progresses in aging, you get a loss of the cellular phenotype, In in the five or six different cell lineages in the liver. And that means you lose function. All right. So basically, I can tell you that aging directly impacts all the different liver cells. Okay. Now, this is a published, this this information is coming from a paper published in Computational Structural Biotechnology Journal. It was published in 2019. And the volume of that is is volume 17. And it starts at the page 1151. So this, what I'm telling you right now, comes from that paper. Okay. So again, aging directly impacts all the different liver cell types. What are those? You've got hepatocytes, of course. <clears throat> liver sinusoidal endothelial cells are called LSECs. You've got stellate cells, and because they're hepatic, they're called HSCs. You've got Kupffer cells, which are immune cells. And so, those are the basic cell lineages in the liver, and aging impacts them all, but at differential rates. Most of the research on aging in liver is focused on the hepatocyte because that's where most of the damage seems to be occurring. And so, there's a lot of literature on what happens in the liver. And we've talked about it when we discuss hepatocellular carcinoma. And because of that, we know that there is what, what goes on with a young, healthy liver versus an advanced age liver. So an aging liver, um, the way that it differs from the young is in the young liver, solutes like lipoproteins and insulin and glucose are able to diffuse easily, sometimes with facilitated transport between the blood and the hepatocyte. And that's done so via those uh, L-cells I told you about. Those are liver sinusoidal endothelial cells, the l sex And there are fenestrations in those cells, and that's what allows for intercellular communication. And there's a release of vascular endo- endothelial growth factor, or VEGF, from hepatocytes, and nitric oxides. And this aids and facilitates that process of uptake. There's also a hepatic hepatocyte growth factor, or HGF. And the l sex and the hepatic stem cells age when there are multiple changes, either to um, VEGF, nitric oxide, or to that HGF dynamic. Okay, that's the hepatocyte growth factor dynamic. The expression of those proteins and their turnover. Hepatocytes demonstrate, of course, an increased polyploidy as they get older, like all cells do, because that's due to DNA damage and lack of good repair. You get an accumulation of lipofusin. I talked about that about three weeks ago. There's reduced mitochondrial uh, oxidative phosphorylation electron transport chain that's going to generate oxidative stress. More ROSP is going to be produced, of course. And then those cells now can be canonically called um, senescence-associated secretory phenotype, or the SASP. So SASP is really important because once you make a cell that can um, secrete factors so that remember, that's a secretory phenotype, it promotes the recruitment of our friends, the inflammatory cells, right? So also beyond that, the SASPs have a greatly reduced level of the fenestrations necessary uh, for the for those uh, hepatocytes to function, to be able to take up glucose and fatty acids, for example. And so that's a key feature in the SASP type cells. Um, you get also an additional cellular autophagic response and you get an increase in what's called a cell adhesion marker expression system. So th- this whole thing demonstrates a phenotypic change, change with basically associates with increase lipid accumulation, collagen and lamina production. And that leads to all of this, all of these um, collagen fibers and triacylglycerol binding to and corrupting the basal membrane because they get deposited there. And that promotes low-grade inflammation, which ultimately turns on the cup cells because the cup cells accumulate within the liver with age and they adhere to the adhesion markers expressed on those um, sinusoidal endothelial cells. So that gives you basically this low-grade inflammation. And that will then drive the expression from the Kupfer cells of the cytokine interleukin-6. And then that whole interleukin-6 process is going to start signaling, and that's one of the components of the SAS phenotype. All right. So I'm going to leave you with that, and I promise next time, I'm going to give you a generic dis- discussion of programmed cell death, PCD. Remember, that's a genetically controlled cell suicide pathway. So I'm going to talk a lot about uh, just canonical program cell death and a little bit about ferritosis and necrotosis, which I've talked about in the past, because I want you to remember that that's really a critical feature of all of those. So... I'm going to stop here and let you know that we're going to continue while i'll probably do another lecture today or early tomorrow morning and we're going to keep on track by finishing off apoptosis which again is a key feature in senescence okay we need to understand how that functions we need to know that's different from necrotosis and the typical just aging of the cells which i've just now started to get into so again this is dr dan gawera coming to you from authentic biochemistry Please visit my Patreon and donate when you can and leave suggestions. And please go on iTunes and rank us with uh, five stars if you feel so inclined. So anyway, Dan we're here saying bye for now.